Well, good morning again and welcome back. Uh, if you've been with us through the whole summer, you know that with a couple of interruptions there in the middle, we've been going through this series that we're calling Underqualified. And what we've been doing is we've been going through the lives of all of Jesus' 12 disciples or 12 apostles, talking about uh, their personalities a little bit, looking at characteristics, and trying to find ways where we can sort of bridge similarities between them and us. Because I think it's really important that we are able to view ourselves uh, as disciples and apostles of Jesus and people that can go out and do His work. But sometimes we don't have enough confidence or maybe the knowledge or maybe we feel a little underqualified to do that. So we've gone through uh, four of the disciples so far. The first week we talked about Peter. Uh, then we talked about Andrew. The next week, James. And then John. And this week, we're diving into the life of Philip. And what I hope is that after this morning, you'll be able to maybe relate. Maybe the first four, you're like, eh, that's not really my personality. I'm, I, I haven't really been able to grasp there yet. Philip is a bit of a different guy than the rest of them. And so maybe this is the week where you can grasp on and go, oh, there was one of those in the group. We're really excited uh, that now I can sort of relate. So hopefully we can get there this morning. Uh, we're just going to start with the call here of Philip found in uh, John chapter 1. Uh, it says this, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this is the call of Philip. This is Philip's uh, getting sort of brought into this group of 12. And it happens together with Nathaniel. And I read that other part as well because that's important because Nathaniel is there because Philip goes and gets him right away. This is one of those first things we see about Philip in Scripture almost right away. He finds Jesus or Jesus finds him. We'll talk about that in a second. And he immediately goes, I've got to tell somebody about that. Uh, and he does. Philip is likely a fisherman. We think that for a couple of different reasons. The first is, is where he's from is the same place that uh, Andrew and James and Peter are from. And they were all sort of working there together. And there's another time near the end uh, of the, the gospel there when Jesus is uh, crucified and not yet risen, and all of the disciples go back, and Peter says, well, I'm going fishing. And there's a list of disciples that go with him, and then it says, and the other two. And based on what we think those other two are, we're pretty sure that Philip is one of those two. So actually, we think that 
Philip knows these disciples that we've talked about already because he was also in the wilderness with John the Baptist when they first encountered Jesus as they were searching for him. So there are, not, there are some things that aren't as explicit about Philip as they were with some of the others, but we can piece things together and sort of put a picture of his life together. Now that other part is really interesting. Nathaniel uh, is somebody who is there because Philip goes and finds him and says, I have found the Messiah. And that's so interesting, I think, because Philip says, I have found the Messiah. I found him. I found him. Not he found me, but I found him. And that's really interesting because I think sometimes in our lives there are moments where we feel like God finds us and there are other times where we look and we find God. And of course, we know from the things that Jesus taught us that he chose them, but it's really cool that Philip looks at it that way. He's excited. When are you excited to find something? when you're looking for it, right? This means it wasn't passive. It wasn't something that happened accidentally. Philip feels like he found Jesus because he's been looking for the Messiah the whole time. And that's really, really exciting for him. And then he goes and finds Nathaniel and goes, you've got to meet him. You've got to meet him. We found him. I know where he's at. And Nathaniel kind of questions a little bit and goes, are you sure? And Philip goes, yeah. Yeah, you've got to come see this for yourself. Let's go. And this, if I can sidebar for a minute, is something that we need to remember too because in the same, and we see this over and over and over and over in the Gospel. There are certainly people that Jesus draws uh, to Himself. And there are certainly moments where uh, teachers or rabbis or pastors have the opportunity to get in front of people and draw them towards Jesus. But more often than not, it's relationships and friendships that are the bridge between somebody to get to know God or not. And just to show you that I'm not making this up, I've got a chart because Philip is an accountant and I can't show up here without a chart in his honor or that would be terrible. So throw my chart up there. Uh, this is a study that was done by Barna. And the question was asked, who is my preferred partner for a spiritual conversation. And now I read this chart from the back this morning, and I know it's a little bit harder to read, and I'm so sorry about that. We tried to fiddle, and it just, uh, so you'll have to trust me when I, when I read these down. 60% of practicing Christians and over 50% of people who were not Christians or not practicing said that they would first like to talk to a friend, then a spouse, then children, and then somebody that was religious, like a pastor or somebody that worked in a church. And I think that's really important for all of us to remember because there's so many times in our lives, and we're going to see this a little bit in a couple of the stories that we're going to look at, where maybe we wait and we think, should I tell somebody about God and my experience and my faith, or should I introduce them to somebody that's more qualified? And the reality is, is that most people would rather just talk to you and I want you to know, not that you need to, but just in case there's one person in here that needs to hear this, I give you permission to do that. That's okay. You're not going to hurt my feelings if you talk to the person instead of bringing them to me. It's really fine. We're all called to do that, but this is actually what people prefer, which is really, really interesting to me. So he tells Nathaniel. And his response is, can anything good come? And Philip doubles down. 
He goes, yep, absolutely. He's got huge faith up front. Philip's been searching for the Messiah. He's been looking. Now he's found. And boom, his faith in Christ is there right away. And this is one of those little relatable parts that I think we're going to get to is that there are moments, especially in the beginning of our faith journey sometimes, where we are two feet in the deep end, all in, let's go, no looking back, no doubt. But then the longer sometimes we walk with our faith, the more doubt creeps in. And doubt is healthy and it happens and it's okay. It causes us to stretch and it causes us to grow. And we see this throughout the ministry and the life of Philip. So let's just sort of jump in to a couple of these stories. Now, before I tell these stories, I want to give you context into them. I said Philip was a little different. So Peter is big and loud and Andrew is sort of off in the background a little bit. And James and John, we talked about their nicknames were the Sons of Thunder. So I don't know what you think of when you think of Son of Thunder, but if you had a child that you referred to as Son of Thunder, probably not a meek child. Probably not quiet. Probably not just chilling in the background. Oh, I forgot you were there. Thank you for sitting. You're a Son of Thunder. So these first four, Andrew a little less though than the three, are a little bit more up front. Uh, Philip, He's a little bit more of the facilitator. He's a little bit more the organizer. He's got a little bit more of that accountant brain. He's the one that's looking after lodging, who's doing the math, who makes decisions, and we all either are this person and we know this person, and depending on whether or not you are this person or you know this person, this person makes you really excited or they make you crazy. They're the people who look at the math, they look at the numbers, and that's the determining factor as to whether or not something can work. This plus this doesn't equal this, can't happen. Right? We know this from when we do math or we, we look at our accountants. We go, oh, I'd like to buy this thing. You can't. You don't have the money. You don't have the income. Look at the chart. But I believe I can do it. No. Look at the proof you can't do it. Philip is very structured this way in the way that he thinks. Uh, my a wife and I are different in this way. Lauren is much more of an analytical by-the-numbers person. She certainly likes to step out in faith and will do that. But of the two of us, I would say I'm the one that's a little more whimsical. And so, is that right? Hey, there you are. Yes, okay. So, We've had so many conversations in our marriage where I've said something like, yeah, I would love to have a jet ski. That would be really cool. And in the beginning of our marriage, she would look at that and she'd go, okay, it costs this much, it would whatever. And like five minutes later, she'd come to me and go, we can't have one of those. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, but wouldn't it be nice? And she's like, why are you even thinking about that? Because it doesn't work. And she's right because... When I'm saying it, I'm just kind of like, yeah, maybe it'll happen. That would be really cool. I'm not really doing the math. I'm not really working it out. But she keeps me honest, and then I stretch her uh, the other way. And so we have some really fun conversations that way. And based on the amount of people that are both looking at each other and giggling, I think probably you do too, which is great. So we know at least some of us are going to be able to relate to Philip. Now, the first place we see this is in John chapter 6 in the feeding of 
the 5,000. We've gone over this story a couple times uh, in this series already. But basically what happens is that a whole bunch of people have gathered to listen to Jesus talk. And it's nearing the end of the day, and it's getting late, and it's getting near dinner time. And Jesus, in chapter, or in chapter 6, verse 5, um, he says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming, he said to Philip, why? Because Philip's the guy that's already counting heads. He probably already knows how many people are there. He's figuring out that. He, they're all smart enough to know that what time it's going to be and something's going to happen. And, and Jesus says, where shall we buy bread for all of these people? And then in verse 6, he says, he asked this only to test him for he had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answers, eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough bread for all of these people. Now, I don't know if that conversation, in my mind, because I like to think of things this way sometimes, I like to think Philip had that answer. How are we going to buy bread for all these people? I've already done the calculations. Can't do it. Too many people, too much stuff. We could go, we could buy the cheapest wheat, we could get little biscuits. They're going to be an appetizer. People aren't going to be full anyway. We're going, to, we're going to spend all of our cash flow. We're going to be sleeping in the forest. We can't do it, Jesus. It can't happen. He's, he's the analytics guy, right? And we know that, uh, that it's after that another one of the disciples, Andrews, Andrew, uh, brings the loaves and the fishes to Jesus and says, I don't know what you can do with this, but let's see. Philip looks at this sometimes in a way that's super helpful, but other times his faith goes through that analytical process to a fault. He, he kind of forgets that the variable in the equation that Jesus was talking about is Jesus. That sometimes the math doesn't add up, but when you add in the Holy Spirit and when you add in the things that Jesus can do, then different things can happen. And even though at this point Peter has seen Jesus do all kinds of amazing, miraculous things, we can see how his mind goes, I don't see how that's going to work. There's another story here in John chapter 12. Uh, we've uh, talked about this one a little bit too. In uh, John chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And these Greeks who were visiting for Passover, to come celebrate. These were likely Greeks that were uh, God-fearing, following the way of Mo like the laws of Moses and the way the Jewish culture laid it out already. They came to Philip. Maybe because Philip was a Greek name and they recognized that and that's when they went to him. Maybe because he was the organizer. Maybe he was the first one they went to. But either way, they went to Philip. And this is what we read. He says, They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Now, this is another one of those little structure things. If you're a person that's inspired by numbers and structure and rules, you know that if somebody asks you a question, the first thing that goes to your brain is, what do we normally do? What's the process here? How does this work? Do we have a way this happens? Is there a chart? Is there a checklist? One, two, three, four, five. And in this moment, it kind of looks like these people came to Philip and went, we'd like to meet Jesus. And Philip went, uh, can we do that? Can people just go up? I'm not, I'm going to check. 
And Philip goes to check with Andrew, who we learned a couple of weeks ago will bring anybody to Jesus, and they bring these people to Jesus together, and that's really exciting. And this is really cool, too, because it gives us insight into Philip. He's that analytical mind. He likes the structure. He knows. It's like you can tell he wants to, but he's not sure if he's allowed. And so many of us sometimes feel that way when it comes to talking about our faith. I want to do it, but is it okay? Is that all right? Just another little bit insight into his personality. The last story here that gives us a little bit into it is uh, in the upper room. So they're about to have, the, they're having the last supper with Jesus before he goes off and is eventually betrayed and arrested and crucified. And in John 14, uh, starting in verse 5, we hear this story. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's a verse we talk about a lot. And usually when we look at John 14, we focus on that part. But let's look at the next section here because this is what tells us something about Philip. If you know me, says Jesus, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus very plainly looks at them and says, if you know me, you know God because I am God. So, if you know me, you know God because I am God. He pretty plainly says it right there to the disciples. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Translation, can I just have a little more proof can you just show me one more piece of evidence? Can you show me one more thing? And then that will be enough for us. I need all the slots filled. I need all the pieces there. And in verse 9, Jesus says, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. You've already seen a ton. You've seen the evidence. It's all been laid out. You can believe in that. You don't need that one last little piece. I'm showing you that it's already there. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father will be glorified in his Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So this is both a shock and a surprise and totally relatable. Philip has now spent his whole life, uh, or sorry, Jesus' whole ministry, with Jesus, about three and a half years. They've wandered around. They've looked th looked things. He's, he's watched the miracles. He's watched Him heal people. He's listened to the teaching. They've seen the feeding of the 5,000. They've had all of these internal conversations as disciples about what are we supposed to do and how does this work and how do we learn. And at the very end of all of it, this, the, the most evidence anybody will have that Jesus is who He says He is 
Philip, the one who likes the checklist, goes, I've just got that one last box I need to fill. Can we just check that one? Would that be okay? And so many of us live like that. I know I certainly do in moments. I've been a Christian for most of my life. I've seen God do some amazing things in my time. And there are still some times where I go, can I just have that one more little piece of proof? Can I have that one solid thing that's down? Can I, can I have that one more thing that really gives me the confidence that you are who you say you are? Philip's really cool because I love people who think that I love people who think things through on that level because I don't always look at the world that way. And so I learn from people who look deep into the analytics, but also those people are stretched by people like me who go, don't worry about it, let's just go. And some of us are those whimsical people that are like, we can just go and it's going to be fine and God will do what he says he's going to do and we're going to be okay. And other of us, others of us need a little bit more evidence. We need a little more information. We need the data to line up. We need A plus B to equal C or else we're going to struggle. And that's how we're kind of like Philip, Right? We depend on the math for something supernatural to happen. We depend, we depend on A plus B equals C, but we forget that that variable in there is Jesus and that Jesus can transcend how we feel about things and what we want to do because He's God. We're in situations every day I'm in them still, and I have, I think it's a benefit, to be honest. I, I have a benefit that most people don't have in introducing Jesus into a conversation in which when you meet somebody, like one of the first four things they ask you is, what do you do? So I've kind of gotten out there. I don't really, I haven't had to ask, I haven't had to introduce Jesus into a conversation with somebody who doesn't know that I'm a pastor for a really long time. So there's a part of me that's it's actually hard for me to relate to that because my life for most of it has been that way. But I know that there are a lot of people that I've talked to all the time that go, I'm not sure when to talk about this or if I should. What are the rules on this? Is there an order? Is there a best moment? Is there a time? Is there a place? It, it would really help me if I had a conversational checklist. I know their favorite food. I know where they work. I've learned their kids' names. We watch the same TV shows. Now I can introduce Jesus. That would really help those structured analytical minds. And I'm, I'm here to just tell you and encourage you that you can bring him into a conversation whenever you need to or whenever you want to and whenever you feel pushed and called and nudged. There's no right or wrong time to do that. There isn't a one standardized list as much as we'd all love it to be. It's okay to just bring him into a conversation when the time calls. And the third is just like that third one. There are times where we always need more proof. I've seen God work in my life in incredible ways. I have friends who have had the same, but there are still moments where we need just a little bit more. And in those moments, in those times, 
It's really hard to remember all of the things that happened before, which is why we need somebody beside us, guiding us, somebody like Jesus to remind us or like one of our other friends around us to go, hey, remember all of the other things that God has done for you. Remember all the other times that Jesus has showed up. He will show up again, and this is why, and this is how. And sometimes we just need that little extra step, that little extra push. And again, I'm here to remind you and encourage you that even if it doesn't look like it's going to add up in that moment, that Christ hasn't gone anywhere. That He's still there and that even though you might feel like you need a little more, a little more, a little more, you can pursue that while also depending on Christ to come through for you and to be with you where you want Him and need Him to be. We're like Philip because we've all been here. But I think when I was doing the study for this, throughout this whole thing, this is the big thing that stood out for me. It's that Jesus is always the variable in the equation. We can work things out as much as we want. We can map it out. We can plan it out. I don't know if you planned to baptize 50 people in the same day, but I know that if I was sitting at home and we were talking about how we were going to baptize 50 people in the same day, there would be an Excel spreadsheet and a list and a plan and the songs would just be one verse each instead of the whole thing or whatever. We would plan it out, we would plan it out, but, but Jesus goes, no, 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 the variable here is that I'm with you, I'm in the moment, you can lean on me. Now, does that mean we throw the math out the window? For my accountant friends who are freaking out at the moment, thinking I'm giving everybody terrible tax advice, no. No. We still use our brains. We, we still give the other things. We use the other things that God has given us to make decisions. But at the end of the day, you need to be ready for the variable that Jesus might introduce. Because when Christ introduces the variable, regardless of what the plan is we have, usually... It's for a good reason, and we're better for it. And so this morning, as we sort of close, that's my encouragement to you. My encouragement is that there's definitely some of us that are the fill-up. We're that analytical mind. We're the organizer. We're the planner. And I am jealous of your mind, and I wish I had it, and so does the staff, probably, sometimes. But it's okay, too, to look away from the chart, from the spreadsheet, from the plan for just a minute and to look to Christ and go, what would you like me to do in this moment? How would you have me act? What are we supposed to do here? Because when we acknowledge and remember that Christ is in everything we do, what He makes the way for our lives, that He's the one that's in control, like we talked about at camp a couple weeks ago, that when we're a fill-up and that part is stressing us out, that control part, it allows us to open our hands and give it to Christ and go, we know you're in control and we know it's going to be okay and we might not know exactly what's going to happen next or what the checklist is, but we can lead and walk confidently in you because that's what you've taught us to do. Let's pray together. God, thanks so much that you are the variable. Thank you that uh, 
for those of us who are planners and, and organizers and seekers of information, Lord, that You can come alongside us and give us those things that make us feel confident. And then in our moments of doubt and, and things that we're not sure about, that God, You can come alongside and go, don't worry, I've got this. Lord, thank You for sending Jesus an incredible example of faith and love and mercy and grace to us so that we know in moments where it's really hard to trust on You as the variable in whatever equation in life that we're working on, uh, that we can do that. God, thank You for Philip's faith in You, for his willingness to come to You with the information and then see what You were going to do with it. And Lord, I pray that You would call us to do the same thing that we would come to you with what we have, that we would lay it at your feet, and that we would say, Lord, this is what we've got and this is what we know. Now let's see what you can do. Lord, thank you so much that you are a God who does with us and does for us and has done for us and will continue each and every day. Lord, give us the confidence that we need to lean on that and to lean on your Son, Jesus. In your name, amen.